This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. speak this morning on the godless cross uh, and uh, it's funny as I was preparing uh, Naomi said well oh, you know everyone's really nervous uh, uh, about the sex series that I was going to say things that were slightly challenging and uh, whatever but you're going to find this morning uh, a little bit um, a little bit challenging because we're going to look at the the horrendous <coughs> nature of the cross but let me just uh, start by just pro- uh, focusing your uh, uh, ideas we live in a world of symbols. We live in a world of, of icons and symbols. We live in a world of commercial brands, uh, of symbols that mean things, of, you know, let's do it, or kind of uh, Marxist theory, or the Democratic Party, or the Conservatives, or even icons on our phone. We, all, we understand uh, the power of, of symbols. And it's interesting that if you said to people on the street, what is the symbol of Easter, they would say... No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't say the cross. Well, that's the answer. They would say Easter eggs. eggs. Yeah? And and it's almost like the the Easter eggs have become the symbol of... of, um of, of Easter. And, and, and you know, I'm not against Easter eggs. I'm, I'm big time into chocolate. You know, it's funny as you get older, people don't buy you an Easter egg anymore. But I'm, I'm pleased that at least my wife has bought an Easter egg. So she said, I've bought one for the kids and I've bought one for you. So, you know, it's not a, a bit of chocolate's all right. And, you know, you can go into the kind of egg represents the new life or the new birth. But, but actually, we're going to look at uh, this symbol of, of the cross of Jesus. Uh, and um, it's a, such a familiar symbol that it's almost been kind of uh, sanitized and accessorized. You know, you can, you can wear it, you can have earrings, you can have uh, uh, kind of brooches, you can have, you know, things. And, and the cross has become a kind of essentially uh, uh, sanitized, so we no longer are impacted by the image of a cross. You know, and if you do the... Um, if you do the Alpha course, uh, you know, in the first, uh, second week, Nicky Gumbel says, you know, how strange it would be if we were wearing gallows, uh, you know, earrings or electric chairs around on bangles and stuff. And that, the, the sense of the, 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 the symbol of Christianity is a symbol of execution as really has not, it's kind of been lost. So I read this book when I was on sabbatical last year. Thank you for letting me be on sabbatical. Uh, it's, it's pretty hard going, but I just wanted to be honest and say, this lady's thinking really impacted me. And there's a chapter in here called The Godless Cross. And I, I spoke to a friend of mine, and, and, I said, and he said, it's worth, the book is worth the money alone just for that chapter. So what I've tried to do is to kind of synthesize some of those ideas, flow some of the other ideas, because it really impacted me, and hopefully it's going to impact you in a positive way. But let me quote from that book. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, writes, Christianity is the only global movement to have its central focus, the suffering and degradation of its founder. The cross is so commonplace that it's hard to realise that how unusual it is an image of God. 
the wrenching, abhorrent, irreligious unsuitability of a crucifixion of, as an object of hopes, wishes, and human longings is too easily lost on us. It's too easily lost on us. You know, it, it's just a, a perverse and strange thing to say, you know, you, we put this outside our church building. If we have a church building, one day we might have a church building, we might put a cross outside. Uh, I remember I was at a church in, 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 uh, uh, in London and they used to have a big wooden cross <laughs> at the front. And then we refurb, we knocked the building down, we rebuilt it. And, and, um, and the senior pastor said to me, I want you to take that really old cross away. And people said to me, you know, you're taking the cross, we, we need to keep the cross central. And I understand what they were saying, and I said, look, it's not just about having a, a, a symbol at the front, it's about having the cross of Jesus central to your thinking. And so I'm not against kind of wooden symbols and stuff like that, I think they can be really helpful, but it's about having the cross as the centre of our thinking. And so the question quickly follows on then, why did, not why did Jesus have to die? That's the second week of the Alpha course. We look at that on the 3 to one course. But actually the question is, why crucifixion? Why crucifixion? Why not an injection? You know, why not poison? Like, you know, Greek heroes. You know, why not beheading? Why crucifixion? Why this cruel agony? Why this degrading, dehumanizing, humiliating, ghastly manner of death? Why? Why that? So I want to go back, I haven't preached out of a passage for a while because we've been doing the series on sex, but I want to go back uh, uh, 3,000 years. So 2,000 years about is when Jesus was crucified. 1,000 years before that, before crucifixion was even invented, crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians about 300 BC, uh, not by the Romans, it's the Romans who kind of took it and perfected it, if you want to use that horrible phrase, Uh, but, but... a thousand years before crucifixion is invented, a guy called David, who you know, David and Goliath, from that story, he writes this incredible psalm. And he actually set it to a song. It's actually set to, a, in the Bible it says, to a tune, the doe of the morning. Whatever that is, we sure come. Graham, up on the keyboard, plays the doe of the morning. And, 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 I, and actually, it's really interesting. The psalm is a bit like a, a piece of paper. Uh, just as you read it, it's, it's kind of almost like the centerpiece is some the, these incredible moments of crucifixion that David sees even before crucifixion's been invented. Get your head around that. So uh, he sees these moments. It's almost like the, 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 the psalm kind of hinges or is folded on, on around those the central moments. And actually, as, as I read it, just to keep you with me, because it's a long psalm, I've actually highlighted some of the words that are kind of come at the beginning, at the end, in the middle, in the middle, in the middle, like that. Okay, so let's read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll uh, unpack it. Starts with really familiar words. My God, my God, why have you so forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I am not silent. You, the Holy One, enthroned on Israel's praises, in you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me, they hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. 
Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You, you made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast in you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me. For trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan or fertile fields encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me and poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax and it's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a shard of pottery and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You have laid me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, an assembly of wicked encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They have divided my clothing amongst them and cast lots for my garments. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions and save me from the horns of wild oxen. And I will declare your, praise, your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. <clears throat> all you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For the Lord has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for salvation. Yet I will praise you in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my promise to you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For the Lord's is the kingdom, and he rules over the nations. All the wealthy of the earth will feast with the, all who go down to the dust. Those who have no life in them will kneel before him. Offspring will serve him. Future generations will tell the story of the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, It is finished. He has done it. Father, we pray as we look into these words that were like so insightful into that moment of your crucifixion, written by David before crucifixion was invented. Lord, we, we marvel at the insight. We marvel at what he saw, but Lord, it wasn't a song that David was going to sing. It was a song that you, Lord Jesus, sang. And I pray as we hear this song upon your lips this morning that you would move us to understand again how much it cost you, how deeply you loved us, and how your cross has transformed everything for us. Amen. Are you up for the journey? If you haven't ever read that psalm or you've never been in church, I just want to underline again, it is incredible insight. If we'd read from the Gospels, the story, the, the Jesus story, the Gospel stories, it's almost like David has this incredible insight, this prophetic insight, we'd say, into something that's going to happen. Because he, he was never kind of pierced in his hands or his feet or his bones were out of joint. He's, he's, he's writing a song for someone else to sing. And on the th at 3 p.m. on Friday the 3rd of April... A.D. 33, Jesus of Nazareth is nailed to a Roman cross. 
and he opens his mouth, as it were, to sing these words. Dying in the supernatural darkness, suspended between heaven and earth, Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lamak sabachthani. Which John says it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes people say that, that actually Jesus does no idea what my life is like. That Jesus has got no concept for the suffering I face. Has got no insight at all into these things. Uh, but yet, there's a universal cry here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of the suffering. The oppressed. The unjustly accused. The falsely imprisoned. The tortured. The abused. The rejected. The neglected. The exploited. The robbed. The raped. The poor. The hungry. The weak. This is the human cry. But yeah, there's this sense of this kind of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This sense of the, the cry of the suffering, the cry of humanity, maybe intensely, if you've been sinned against. Or maybe mildly, if you've, if you've just had those moments where you felt alone. This cry, Jesus embodies this cry. And I don't know, you know, when people say, where's God? I think some people even like cry. I don't know, who, who do you cry to when you don't believe in anything? You know, do you speak it out into the emptiness? Kind of, what's happening? God, where are you? Or why am I forsaken? You cry that out into the emptiness. But, but Jesus, who's been, uh, you know, it says from his mother's womb, even before he was born, because he's the son of heaven, cries out, God, where are you? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the cries of my anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I am not silent. Jesus cries out, and you'd expect heaven to answer. Because actually when Jesus got baptized, heaven bursts open, and, 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 and a voice from the Father in heaven says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I delight. Jesus cries out in the darkness, but the Father does not answer. Jesus is, is, is entering the moment where we, that we feel. He enters that kind of sense of, 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 of desperation, that distance that we all feel. And David's song takes us into the crucifixion in a way that the gospel writers don't. The gospel writers just say, and they crucified him. And you can think, well, well, why are you talking about this, Howard? Because the gospel writers don't talk about it. But actually, I think the reality is the gospel writers don't talk about it is because everybody who read the gospels in the first century that lived in Roman, uh, Roman Empire, they knew what it was like. They knew what it meant to be crucified, but we don't. Because, you know, it, it was a, the Victorians who didn't talk about sex, but, but talked about death a lot because death was there. You know, in the slums and in the exploited workers and factories, you know, the death was all around in Victorian times, but now we sanitize it. Death's taken out of our houses and put into hospitals and quietly hidden away. It's actually not that, 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 that more, less people are dying these days. There's more people, so more people are dying. But we've kind of taken it and sanitized it away. You know, the reality is we talk about sex all the time, but never talk about death. But every citizen in the Roman world wouldn't have not only been familiar with death, but they would have, been, they would have seen the crucified, tormented bodies of the dying placed like billboards around the town. 
So as you drive and you see a billboard for this thing and this thing around the town, in Roman Empire, you would have seen the, board, the, the, the hanging bodies of crucified victims. And it was saying to the people that every citizen of Rome is that we have power over you. We've got power over you. You step out of line and we not only hold your life, but we hold your death. And you can die in this most horrendous of ways. Crucifixion was the billboard display of the power of Rome, of the intimidating power of the state to degrade and dehumanize and slowly excruciating, that means of the cross, torture and kill bodies of those who oppose it. Crucifixion was meant to eliminate from history, obliterate from memory every person that died by crucifixion. It's not a chance of history that we don't remember a single name but one. Because the whole point of crucifixion was to take you and dehumanize you and to crush you like an insect and cast you aside. Historian Joel Green says this, Degradation was the whole point. Executed publicly on the busiest highways, devoid of clothes, left to be eaten alive by birds and beasts, victims of crucifixion were subjected to heightened, unmitigated, vicious public ridicule. Dehumanized like a worm or insect to be crossed without thought underfoot. David captures this a thousand years before the event They were not put to shame, he says, of Israel, but put in Jesus' words, he says, but I am a worm and not a man, dehumanised. A worm to be squashed, scorned and despised by the people. And even, it's amazing, even gets the exact words that were said to Jesus on the cross. All who see me, mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their head, he trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And, and where we're going to go now is like, you know, I, I'm not trying to shock. I'm not trying to be gratuitous, but I just want you to just look. I mean, I remember, I, I don't like the film The Passion of the Christ. For a whole load of stuff, that it, it obsesses about the, the physical nature of Jesus' death, but and doesn't talk about the spiritual impacts, but I think we can go the other way. We can talk all about the spiritual benefits of Jesus' death on the cross and forget the physical impacts. So we're going to go there for a moment. Victims of crucifixion were scourged with leather whips, with metal bones, a metal and bone on the, on the, on the cords. And the lictors, the, the Roman... Were, uh, the Roman uh, scourges were, were meant to kind of whip the, the, the naked back and buttocks and, and strip the flesh. Massive blood loss, circulatory shock trauma from just so much blood loss and so much pain. The lictor's aim was to weaken the victim to the brink of collapse or death. It was common then for, for, the, for after the, scorch, the, the, the scourging to be accompanied with taunting and ridicule. And, and in Jesus' case, he had a crown of thorns pressed on his head and a purple robe put on him. And they beat him about the head again and again and said, Hail, King of the Jews! 
And it says they repeatedly beat him throughout the night. In the morning they came to take him from the cell, just as they'd taken every crucified person before them. But Jesus is too weak to carry the crossbar. But they still, they would take the crucified and put their clothes back on them and parade them through the streets. Exposed to the full scorn of, of the population. We've got really no grid for that. It's a bit like the, the medieval executions of hanging and drawing and quartering where, where people came out to, the, to, to look at the spectacle and joined in a spectacle and, and, and ridiculed and spat at the victims. And it became this gory event. When the place of execution was reached, in, Ju- in Jerusalem it was called Golgotha. It was called the place of the skull. Victims were stripped naked. I know when we see art of Jesus, there's always a loincloth to cover his nakedness, but Jesus is stripped naked. The victims were thrown on their back and all the wounds that were open were suddenly, dirt was introduced. And then they were nailed through the the medial nerve, not in the hand because that would rip out, but they're, they're nailed through the, the wrist, laying down and nailed through their wrist, through the searing pain of the, the nails going into their medial nerve. And then they were hoisted up and the upright was nailed onto the, the crossbar was nailed onto the upright. And the body was stretched out and the legs were nailed. The feet were nailed to the upright. David writes, Dogs surround me, an assembly of the evil encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes amongst them and cast lots for my garments. How did people die from crucifixion? And again, I, I, I can feel your uncomfortableness. But I just think, let, let, let's just go there just for a moment. But how did people die? That they, they died by suffocation. What happened is, as you, as you take a breath, you'd push up on your diaphragm, you'd, you'd do this to take a breath. But what happened is, the, the crucified one would have this horrible option either to pull up on the nails in the wrists to try and gas, grab a breath, or, or, or to push up on the nails in the ankles to, to try and grab a breath. But slowly, if he, over hours and sometimes days, the, the inability to grab a breath meant the heart would race faster and faster and faster in a vain attempt to push oxygen to the cramping muscles. You know, if you get cramped, you think, ah, oh, lack of oxygen, but here's the, the whole body cramping. It's almost as if the weight of the victim's own body was killing them. It's their weight trying to, was pulling down and they're, they're trying to lift and get a breath. Fleming Routledge is a very, very nice middle-class American lady and she says this. As the body began to collapse, bodily functions would be uncontrolled. Excrement would run down the victim's legs, attracting insects to feast on wounds and orifices. Dehydrating thirst would slowly grip the victim. David writes, I am poured out like water. 
and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it's melted within me. It's like a pumping heart for a breath. A dislocation as he's dropped on the cross. My, my strength is dried up like a, a shard of pottery. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth and you've laid me in the dust of death. We're going to climb out in a moment. The sight of crucifixion was meant to be ghastly to behold. Isaiah writes, and we'll come to this again in our series on Isaiah that's starting after Easter, it says, it says, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. As from one, as one from whom men hide their faces. This sight of crucifixion was meant to be so horrible that you were that the crowds were kind of ghoulishly drawn to it, but yet wouldn't look. The intelligentsia of the Roman world regarded the marred body of the crucified as assault on humanism. If you look at the statues uh, of Greek athletes, the, the kind of perfect bodies. That was the aspirational thing of the Greek and Roman world, but yet here's, here's, here's the crucified one. And thousands and thousands were, were crucified, but here's Jesus, the crucified one, his body marred. To talk of crucifixion in in polite society was an offence against good manners in Rome. To speak of the hideous death of slaves, because this was not a, this not a, a death for, for the well-to-do and the wealthy and the people of influence. This was a, a death for slaves. To talk about such a hideous death of slaves in the presence of respectable people was socially and morally repugnant. They would look at him and despise him. The Jews who were there would have also despised him. Nakedness in Jewish culture was, was horrendous. It was uh, the ultimate shame. We feel that. The ultimate shame. They would have looked at him and, and thought, he's cursed by God. It says in Deuteronomy 21.33, it says, Cursed by God is everyone hanged on a tree. And you can hear that in their mockery. David records it, but let's read Matthew. They says, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the chief scribes and elders mocking him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. They missed the whole point. But by being crucified, he was saving others and not saving himself. And to come down from the cross would have meant that he would have saved himself, but he could not have saved us. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he really desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So let's turn to our question then. Why that? Why that? You can breathe. Just breathe, okay? Just breathe. Why that? Fleming Rutledge says this, and I think this is kind of like 
just understand this, and you might struggle to get your head around it, but we'll try and unpack it as we move towards finish. She says this. She writes, Jesus was crucified as no other mode of execution would have been commensurate with the extremity of humans, humanity's condition under sin. Do you know what commensurate means? It means equivalent to or corresponding to or equal. Let's read that again. Jesus was crucified as no other mode of execution would have been equal to, co- corresponding with the extremity of humanity's condition under sin. So if you think the crucifixion was awful, the reason why you think that is because actually it's the equivalent of each of us under the power of sin. Now let me just unpack that one for you a little bit. Paul puts it like this in Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of sin or the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. On the cross, Jesus took the full force of the impact of sin, that rebellion against God. He he didn't simply experience its impact. He embodied it. He became it. Now, at this point, we go, well, hang on a minute. All right, so let me read the other verse that's there as well. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Paul writes again in Corinthians, all this is from God through Christ. It's not the Father doing it to the Son. It's, it's from God through Christ who made him, Jesus, to, who had no sin, to be sin, who had no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You need to understand here that, that what's happening in Jesus' body on the, cruci- on the cross is he's actually embodying what sin looks like. Now at this point I go, Doot. I don't compute with that. Because in my individualistic kind of Western mindset, I don't see the, the significance between my bits of wrongdoing and that horrendous stuff. It feels like too big a jump, right? You think, well, that just seems totally out of proportion with if I tell a lie that Jesus has to suffer that. If I ignore God and chase after other things, that seems like a small thing and Jesus has to suffer that. And we think, that's too big a jump for me to make. Do you agree? We think, "Ah, ah, no, it's not right. But we need to think of sin in wider terms than just individualistic, you you did wrong. This is not, Jesus. we walk up, you know, keep off the grass, we walk on the grass and Jesus has to be crucified like that. We need to think sin in different terms. Yes, your lie is a rebellion against God who's all truth. But sin actually is a symptom of a wider human condition. When the first humans rejected God in an attempt to enthrone ourselves as kin, and we've talked about this a lot, we found that not that we ruled, so we reject God as ruler, we want to put ourselves on the throne, but we find not that we rule, but sin rules. Everything as opposed to God has invaded as an occupying power ruled over us. I thought about this in the, in the shower this morning. What, what, what was the political situation in Israel at that time? Anybody, you can help me at this point? They're occupied by the Romans, thank you. Occupied by the Romans. 
The Romans enslaved. The Romans held captive. The Romans had the power of life and death over you. You could not disobey them. Interestingly, who represents God's laws in, in this kind of political situation? If the Romans represent the power of, of sin, who, who represents kind of God's laws? The Jews do. And the God's laws, they couldn't, the God's laws did not bring them life. All it did is bring Jesus, they collaborated, the Jews and Romans collaborated together to bring Jesus to death. You might think, I don't have a clue what he's talking about, but he talked to me in coffee. So we've not only got the, the, this idea of, of sin as an idea, but it's actually embodied by the Romans. And, and, and Jesus is, 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 is working through that, that sin's invaded as like this occupying a, a army that's enslaved and messed up the world. Again, Fleming puts it like this. Jesus' situation under the harsh judgment of Rome corresponds to our situation under sin. He was condemned. He was rendered helpless and powerless. He was degraded and stripped of humanity, marred beyond human likeness, shamed, shamed, dying a slave's death alone in the darkness. I wrote this and I thought, well, how do we dig into that? Sin slowly enslaves you. If you've got a habit or something that, that, that you know is destructive, the thing is, it, sin takes you there again and again. And for, mo- for many of us, that might be where it ends. We feel quietly condemned and powerless to change. But actually, sin in our society, and you might not see it in yourself, but you see it in the world, sin unchecked begins to degrade and shame. So sometimes you find these horrible situations of... Oh man, you know, if you find a a situation as a child sex trafficker, for instance, how sin unchecked abuses and violates. One of the things that that Fleming Radcliffe says that, that she, she, she said that she was born just after the Second World War. And people used to say the world's getting better and we're all, getting, we're all doing better and then the Second World War just blew that out of the water. As American soldiers turned, turned up at the gates of Auschwitz concentration camp, the question was asked, how could humanity stoop so low? Was it Is that something in the German political system? Is that something in the German nature? But I think again and again they realise that's the nature of humanity's sin when it's there, it's the dehumanising, the destructive power to mar beyond human likeness, the, the fact that it brings us all to the stench of the grave. And when you look at the world and see how Broken the world is. And again, we're sanitized from a broken world, aren't we? We're sanitized from a broken world in the West. But when people went to Rwanda and saw the genocide, or where, 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 where people went to, you know, now and uh, kind of liberating places where ISIS have been, you don't lift your hands and say, isn't humanity great? You lift your hands and say, there's an occupying power, there's something terrible in the heart of humanity that if it's unchecked, if it's not, if it's not dealt with, it's, it's going to bring us all to destruction. 
It's almost like you, you look at these things and you think, I want to turn my face away. But that's exactly what people felt when they looked at Jesus. I want to turn my face away. And right now we want to turn our face away. You think, Howard, I want to stop. But actually what's happening here is that God's dealing with it. God's dealing with the broken world. Uh, Fleming Routledge again says, The truth is, outrage against evil and injustice is first of all in the heart of God. God's going to do something about this world. I I wrote, when Jesus became sin, he soaked the suffering and shame, the horror and the injustice, the exploitation and greed, the abuse and violation, the wars and atrocity of all humanity into himself. Destroying its destructive power in his own body. The weight of human sin smothering and suffocating and crushing the righteous one. Now at this point you go, hang on a minute, that's not enough, do you? Because you thought, oh my little sin, that's too much for Jesus to go through all that. But now what we do is say, all that, every injustice and brokenness and damaged life, every violent act and you know, every moment of rejection, every, all those things, you think, surely Jesus is too small. Do you, do you see that? But I tell you, it's sufficient for your stuff and it's sufficient for the sins of the whole world. I remember one time talking to somebody uh, who did our Alpha course and they said to me, the world is so messed up. Why doesn't God do something? It's a good question, eh? It's almost a, my God, my God, why have you forsaken us moment? And I thought, and I said to this guy, God has done something. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to make the world right. And he said, it's not enough. And I said, it's enough. But it's transforming power. Starts right here. Starts right here. A couple of quotes and we'll finish. Again, Fleming says this. In our day, we flee the idea of the wrath of God. Even the fact I'm using that word, you think, not happy with that. But if we said the outrage of God, would that help you? Yet in our haste we might ask whether we have thought of the consequences of a belief in God who's not set against evil in all its forms. What about a God who's indifferent? God who doesn't care. That when you cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's got nothing to say. Surely a God who's indifferent is worse. If God were not outraged at evil in all its forms, such a non-indignant God would indeed be an accomplice to injustice, deception and violence. Perhaps the reason we have trouble with the thought of the wrath or outrage of God is that we ourselves sin-soaked accomplices in this world of injustice. Let's climb out. It didn't end that way, did it? It didn't end that way. Jesus has taken your stuff. He's taken my stuff. He's taken all my dark moments and all the horrendous thoughts. He's taken all that stuff and taken it and has embodied it in himself and taken it away and buried it in the grave. But more than that, he's taken enough. He's taken the world's dark stuff. 
And you think, who's going to have justice? You know, Psalm 75 says, you know, it seems like the righteous get a, the, the unrighteous, the wicked just do what they want and there's no justice. But there is justice. Because justice has been meted upon him, upon Jesus. When Jesus dies, he cries out, it is finished. You've heard this before, perhaps, but this is not an empty cry of a world without hope. Oh, it's ruined, it's finished. But this is, as some translations say, it's, he's done it. It's completed. The, 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 the word is telepsi, it means it's accomplished. I've got a friend who's a, a, a pastor in, um, in, in Plymouth, and he's got it tattooed there. I thought it might be a good one. It's all done. God's done it all. Every bad thing, every horrible thing, every hurtful thing. Jesus has paid for it all. He's done it all. I wrote this. Jesus died outside the city. As he died there, when he died there, he took sin and death down to the grave. It's almost like he took that, that Roman power, that's, as it were, and, 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 and took it away. But he took the greater power that messes up the world and messes up life and he took that away and took it down to the grave. Hell had unleashed its power. Sin and death had come to swallow him up. But those two great enemies were defeated, forever exiled from the city of God. God's going to put all that stuff outside the world. He put it all on Jesus because in the end he wants to put it all outside the world. And in that triumphant cry, Jesus knew that he'd rise again from the dust of death by the power of what Paul says is righteous, indestructible life. David puts it like this. Let's read some verses as we land. For the Lord has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry of salvation. He's lifted him out of the grave. And that means he will not despise your suffering. It's not like he doesn't care about your suffering and your stuff. He's not hidden his face from you. He will listen to your cry for salvation. The world's going to be made new. It says, I will fulfill my promise to you. The poor will eat and be satisfied. That's, that's Bible language for justice will be done. And that's why it matters to, have, to do justice to the poor. And that's why the Bible's full of stuff. Do justice to the poor because it's a picture of a world made new. It's not that the Bible's all socialist. It's saying actually that matters because that's a pitch. The poor are a picture of a broken world. It's the poor who suffer most. It's the poor whose diseases are worst. It's the poor whose health is worth. It's the poor whose mental health is worth. It's the poor who suffer most. It's the cries of the poor that go up to Jesus. It's all in the Bible. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Justice will be done. Those who seek the Lord will praise Him. May your hearts live forever. Live forever. Death is swallowed up in eternal life. Everybody that seeks Him, our hearts will live forever. But there's a hint of a shadow as, he, as David finishes the psalm. It says, all the wealthy of the earth will feast with all who go down to the dust. I, I, this is not a comment on the Bible making a comment about wealth. But just like poverty is a picture of a broken world, wealth is a picture of those self-satisfied. Who think, I don't need anything. My life is fine. It's all sorted. I don't need Jesus. I don't need this. 
I've got my nice car. I've got my nice house. I've got my holiday. I don't need this. And he said, well, you, Paul, David says, you can feast, but you'll go down to death. The challenge in Salford, when we were, led a church in Salford, was the poor were hard-pressed. But when they heard about Jesus, they were eager. challenge in Cheltenham is we're comfortable and wealthy, and when we hear about Jesus, we're indifferent. And then it finishes with this great, as it were, hymn of praise. You can, before it was Israel. Now it says, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Future generations will tell the story of the Lord. They'll proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people unborn, he's done it. It was the ancestors of Israel that used to say, that, remember Exodus, remember how, Je- how God took us out of slavery, took us out of this power, took us into freedom. But now it's saying all the nations are going to say that story. Every nation's going to say that story. People yet unborn, kids yet unborn are going to say that story. Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. If you're concerned about the world and injustice, if you're concerned about the way that life so easily gets messed up and so easily broken, this is the answer that Jesus has come and embodied sin and taken it away and taken it down. So no longer you're going to be ruled over by that Roman empire of sin. The world looks for freedom. And Jesus has come to set you free. It's not just a fairy story. It's powerful and transformational. So I just want to ask you some questions as our eyes are closed. How do you feel about your sin now? I remember a friend of mine went to watch The Passion of the Christ and he said to me, he wasn't a Christian, and he said, if that's what it cost, I'm never ever going to do bad again. And I think for us, who are closer to Jesus perhaps in many ways, you might look at what happened to him, what cost him, and think, how can I be so indifferent about him? Well, he so cares about injustice and evil and sin, and we're so indifferent. So we just come and say, Jesus, we come and take it off us. Take guilt, shame, take the crushing effects of sin. Don't let it have its dehumanizing, degrading way with us. Taking us deeper and darker. So we say, God, we say in Bible words, we repent. We repent and say, we're, not, we're, we're done with it. We're done with its enslaving power. Lord Jesus, you might think at this moment there's things that you want to just let go of. You just get to put them on Jesus and say, this belongs to you now. This addiction, this habit, this anger, this grief, it's his now. Jesus takes it to the grave. But I want you to feel, even at the end of this, and I want you to to think as we come and break bread and we think of Jesus' body broken, I want you to think, this is amazing love. 
they stripped him of clothes. When we do this, we can think, oh, this is some sort of religious thing, but this is the moment. This is the moment when you think, Jesus' body is the salvation for me. He frees me and trains me and transforms me. And, and he's done it because he loves me and his body was broken. And his bones were out of joint and everything was, 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 was crushing and dehumanizing. And Jesus said, on the night he's betrayed, he said, take bread. This is my body broken for you. They knew what he meant. They certainly did a few days later. He says, after supper he took the cup. The blood that that flowed in the scourging, the blood that caused circulatory shock, the the blood that poured and was over the garment and was over the cross. He said, this is my blood. Set you free. So let's come. Jesus says, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're not going to turn our faces away this morning and say, Jesus, this is not something we want to talk about. But we're going to say, we're going to come and look at it and say, thank you, it sets me free. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're considered among the wealthy. The ones indifferent to God. And you can eat and feast and do what you want. And sin will still have you. And you go down to the dust of death. But for us who say, I'm poor, I'm needy, I need you, Jesus, we get to feast with him. So let's come and take and eat and be filled. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.